Greetings. My name is Slav Zinchenko, and I am here to put Springfield back on the map. You know, I formed this thought while trying to coach and build a basketball program. Winning is what happens when you do the right things repeatedly. I'm not sure what we're doing as a city right now, but I wouldn't call it winning. Springfield, as far as cities go, was once a true powerhouse, energized by people whose work reached the ends of the earth. It's about time we got back to our winning ways. Welcome to my dinner table, and welcome to the city-state. A hard look at the many things that it will take to transform this beat-up little city back into the champion it once was, starting in the hearts and minds of our people and not stopping until they know our name in the halls of power. This program is our slow but steady climb back to greatness. Let's roll the intro. Springfield specifically, let me ask a broad question. What is a city? While we could come up with various definitions, I'll start with a basic but important one. A city is the first official form of government. Without government, people are said to be in the state of nature. In this state, people basically fend for themselves. They don't have the rules of society, but don't have its protections either. The act of people limiting their freedoms to gain protections gives rise to government. And a city is the most mature, localized manifestation of this phenomenon. Let me illustrate. A city is like a ship tying a particular population to a particular location, which must exist in function within its particular rules and peculiar qualities. While a city, like a ship, is commandeered by people and meaningless without them, it is wholly unique as an entity. And the creation of this unique entity, in turn, creates a new relationship where people interact not only with their neighbors, but also with their government as that unique entity. For better or worse, in one way or another, and especially in cities, people are bound to government. Because higher forms of government include ever greater numbers of people, nowhere else does the average person have as much influence on society or opportunity to express their values than at the local level. Values are expressed formally as laws and informally as attitudes. People abstain from or abuse this value expression to their own harm because, like a ship, a city shifts under the weight of the influence of its people. Ships can sail around the world, but they can also capsize. The expression of values, formally and informally, creates the conditions under which most everything else in a city happens. Therefore, the character of its individual people is of great consequence. I want to point out two things that make the city a very powerful unit. First, a city is big enough to contain a complete ecosystem 
of governance, commerce, and civic life. Having everything within reach is partially what attracts and retains people and makes life more colorful. Greater quality and variety help this along. Second, as people congregate, population density creates synergy. Simply put, this is the idea that two heads are better than one. An increase in people means an increase in activity, which brings together a greater variety of minds and invigorates those minds with greater frequency. Combine that action with capital or the ability to make things happen, and you create opportunity. Opportunity, in turn, creates mobility, and mobility is a great equalizer. Cities, in their best versions, can be and have been success factories. As a result, cities lead and connect the world in politics, economics, and culture. First locally, then as far as their influence carries them onto the national or international stage. But because of its geographical limits, a city is inherently a semi-closed environment. While it may be open to visitors, it exists or should exist to serve its residents. I want to take a hard pause here and acknowledge the obvious. While cities are sources of great success, they are too often where we find great failure as well. The central question is, how do we use success building principles in a city environment to put mobility within reach of everyone who desires it? Now, at various times in history, a city served as the highest form of government, a state unto itself, a city-state. We've all heard, of course, of the Greek city-states, Athens and Sparta being most famous among them. But city-states have shown up in other places as well. In the ancient world, Rome was once a city-state. And in our own time, places or cities like Hong Kong and Singapore, among others, are examples. City-states, to survive, had to be self-sufficient but interdependent, with a strong sense of purpose and engaged citizenry. The city-state can serve as a powerful model of both inward-facing, way-of-life, self-determination, and outward-facing, value-generating production. While the latter is what makes a city famous, the former is what makes a city healthy and whole. After all, anyone outside of the city is effectively a visitor. In what sense does it make for visitors to impose their values on the host population? While I'm not suggesting that Springfield or any other American city be a city-state in the truest sense, there's much to be gained from striving after the local focus of the city-state model. Strength, resiliency, and vigor, all of these characteristics are built from the bottom up. There is no strong country comprised of failing cities. So let's zoom in a little further. If cities are powered by people, then what are people powered by? While it is undoubtedly a whole psychological cocktail, I would propose that ideas are most responsible in turning the wheels of history. While not in perfectly linear fashion, ideas become beliefs, beliefs inform decisions, decisions become actions, and actions have consequences. In that case, if people are powered by ideas, and if ideas have consequences, and if cities amplify those consequences, then cities become the great levers in society. For better or worse, the ideas that become actions in the populations of cities weigh greatly on the course of society at large. Whether we want it or not, it becomes a distinct responsibility of city dwellers to discern between good ideas and bad ones. And how do we distinguish between good and bad ideas? 
by estimating and observing their consequences as they manifest in formal and informal ways on what I call the basic bundle of ambitions. The basic bundle of ambitions is the most general set of desires that can be applied to the general population. While it is marginally optimistic, the basic bundle of ambitions consists of three components, each starting with the letter P, peace, prosperity, and purpose. Now, in a broken world with 8 billion people and millions of various environments and circumstances, it would be too much to say that all people in all places seek these things or even define them in similar or wholesome ways. But generally, probably everybody you know would volunteer for the following sequence of events. Going to bed with a full belly, sleeping soundly, and having a reason to get out of bed the following morning. If we can use peace, prosperity, and purpose as a rough estimate of a person's objectives in life, then we can say that good ideas are those that enable this pursuit, and bad ideas are those that impede it. Generally speaking, wherever you see the attainment of peace, prosperity, and purpose becoming more possible, there are good ideas powering that. Wherever you see prospects for attaining these things declining, some bad ideas have worked their way into people's minds and have manifested in formal and informal ways. Taken in total, all of these manifestations become a culture. And a culture, like a city, has its own characteristics. It is some part of each of its contributors and as a result, distinctly unique from any of them. It could be said that if a city is the body, then its culture is its soul. Combined, this animated machine can make the pursuit of peace, prosperity, and purpose more or less possible. Enter Springfield. Here's a summary of Springfield that I read in this booklet, which was published in 1906. The city of Springfield was founded in 1636 by William Pynchon. The settlement was originally called Agawam, but after five years, the name was changed to Springfield, the home of the founder having been Springfield, England. Main Street, now a busy thoroughfare, was originally an Indian trail along which the settlers erected their log cabins. The settlement suffered all of the hardships of Indian warfare and in 1675, during King Philip's War, was almost wholly destroyed. The early growth was slow, but the establishment of a plant for the repairing of muskets during the Revolution later resulted in the permanent location of the United States Armory, which gave the town a splendid impetus. And this great institution, which annually turns out thousands of rifles for the United States armies, is now but one of the many busy manufacturing plants. Springfield is fortunate in that she is not dependent upon any one class of industries. All of her large manufacturing establishments employ skilled labor at good wages, making it possible for the workmen to own their homes, thus the pseudonym City of Homes. Springfield takes great pride in the equipment and maintenance of her public institutions, and with her clean streets, extensive park systems, and a population that stands for all that is best in citizenship, is easily Queen City of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now that summary of the city was written 116 years ago. I have to ask, does it describe the Springfield of today? And who wouldn't want to live in that Springfield where decent, hardworking and enterprising people could carve out a life for themselves, becoming true part owners 
of a well-cared-for and well-crafted environment. As far as cities go, Springfield, Massachusetts has long punched above its weight in its contributions to society. From the first enterprising settlers of 1636 to the industrious inventors of the 19th and early 20th centuries, Springfield was a place of opportunity that attracted great minds and skilled hands. Here is just one unique example of many. In 1920, none other than the Rolls-Royce Motor Car Company surveyed the American landscape and determined that Springfield, of all American cities, was best suited to produce its premium motor cars in the United States. No other city in the world outside of England can claim that distinction. Among the many other notable achievements that took place here, and that list is long, are the invention of basketball, the creation of the first American automobile, and the design and production of the M1 Garand rifle, like this one here, once called the greatest battle implement ever devised. If the past is any indication, there's a lot to be proud of. But pride in the past is only part of the equation in propelling us into the future. Let's ask, how were the people of 1906 able to create a city which garnered such praise? Did they have more to work with than we do? Were they more educated, more informed, more enterprising, better equipped? Were they of higher moral character? Did they have more freedoms? Is there anything that they did that we cannot do? And if yes, what is it and why can't we do it? If the city is to shine again, we must take on the daunting task of reaching new heights. Now, we won't do it by reopening all of the closed factories or the armory or by otherwise trying to wind the clock back to 1906. And while some of those storied companies of years past still remain and some new players have emerged, there is great need for reinvention to rebound from the decades-long post-industrial slump that we are in. Since a lot of the industry dried up, the city has lacked an identity strong enough to attract, retain, and develop the game changers it once used to. Now obviously, our globalized and digitized world is far more complex than the world of a century ago. To say that we can be impervious to global markets or global politics would be too much. But to say that we are entirely helpless and without agency and effectively doomed would be too little. A recent quote I read resounds here. It doesn't solve everything, but baking it into our attitude would be helpful. It goes as follows. There is no one coming. It is up to you. In similar fashion, the philosopher Voltaire once wrote an idea powerful enough to live by. He states, No problem can withstand the power of sustained thinking. The important truth to put at the center of our thinking is that whatever problems we face have a solution. Perhaps it's been lost or not yet discovered or worst of all, has been known but not been applied. All of these situations can be remedied with sustained thinking and the discussion and application that follows. It is the desire to seek out solutions that made Springfield great in the past and it is that same desire that is the seed of our future. Starting with an engaged citizenry and working its way through institutions and even into the physical environment. Allow me to cast a vision. A restored Springfield could be summarized as such. A structurally beautiful small city marked by a skilled, intrepid, and virtuous population 
with a culture of independence, industriousness, and relationships built by good faith. It would be difficult for such a place not to be peaceful, prosperous, and purpose-filled. But even the best ideas can only survive by adoption in the hearts and minds of everyday people. An idea must become a belief and then become action. It is therefore no great revelation to say that a city is built from the citizen up. In which case, if it is possible to build a rock-solid citizen, the citizen will go out and build a rock-solid city. But how does one build a rock-solid citizen? When a person is sober-minded, what he believes informs his decisions, and his decisions become actions, as we've discussed. The proper place to start building a rock-solid citizen, then, is by making a case for the ideas that will give him or her the greatest ability to pursue the goals of peace, prosperity, and purpose. While this dealing in the marketplace of ideas is first and foremost a role for the people, inevitably the government codifies ideas into laws and policies. The government can thus officially enable or deter good decision-making in its citizenry. With all of that commentary on the table, let me form it into a prescription. To cultivate the kind of Springfield that I described, where its citizens are readily able to pursue and secure peace, prosperity, and purpose, three key players or populations must emerge. The first is a self-sufficient, enterprising, and morally strong citizenry. The second is an open, robust, and respected job creator class. And the third is a government that is frugal, primarily defensive in its functions, and that doesn't burden its citizens with needless obligations. To summarize, there's a lot of work to do. But I'm not under the impression that nice-sounding theories and well-intentioned propositions can make the city a great place. Man, after all, does not live on hype alone. The actual work of improvement must be done. But if we can agree that Springfield isn't what it was in 1906, then an intentional vision and direction for the future is critical. The idea produces the action. A man without direction will waste his life wandering. Now, if you've ever done any sort of uh, repair work on a house or a car, for example, you'll know that the work has four defining characteristics. The first three are that it is messy, demanding, and frustrating. The fourth is that the result, if done right, is highly rewarding. Restoring a city is something like restoring a building. If we wish to see the rewarding results, the messy, demanding, and frustrating repair work must be done. The work must be done. There is no shortcut and there is no other way. Now you might ask, what does it mean to do the work? That's a phrase that's been thrown around with various causes. For me, doing the work means to seriously consider and implement ideas that make the pursuit of peace prosperity and purpose more possible for the average person and to stay away from the ideas that make them less possible. Of course, this is much easier said than done as good ideas compete with a lot of other things in our hearts and minds for our resources. But if the regular person is doing the work in this way, not even bureaucracies will be safe from becoming more helpful versions of themselves until the city itself glows like a beacon. But only the citizen doing the work is not enough. This has to be a whole hog enterprise. Let me illustrate. You will not have a successful basketball program with seven selfish, out-of-shape players who don't practice. Not if your measure of success is winning basketball games. 
But even seven hoopers can be mismanaged by a coach who neglects his responsibilities. And even a great coach with great players can be at the mercy of decision makers in the front office. A winning city, just like a winning program then, is built or laid down in three layers. The first is a coherent vision of the future, also known as beginning with the end in mind. The second is buy-in at every level of decision-making from the individual to the institution. And the third is actually doing the work, living by good ideas and avoiding bad ones. Each of these steps is, by themselves, necessary but not sufficient. Only in their total inclusion is there even a chance at building a winning system. With all that said, I want to address the hypothetical pessimist. If we think that all this talk of restoration is needless, or at best, impossible, consider this. It seems to me that in life, things either get better or they get worse. They either grow or they die. Forward progress is not inevitable. It is only possible if the person making it continues to run. When things start dying and regressing in cities, much suffering for many people follows. This suffering comes in many forms, from the material suffering of increased crime to the moral suffering of wasted potential. In light of this assertion, I would conclude that it is better to endeavor to build a house than to endlessly sleep on the earth. To imagine that Springfield will be a place of peace, prosperity, and purpose without a concentrated and disciplined focus to make it so would be like throwing building materials into a pit and expecting a house to emerge. While there's so much more to get into and expand on all of these thoughts, and this episode is by design general, I'll close it with a reality check. In a broken world, broken people do malicious, thoughtless, and stupid things. It was a broken world in 1636, it was a broken world in 1906, and it is a broken world today. So while men have never and will never become angels, they can very quickly become something like devils. As one author put it, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. Humanity's best countermeasure to such a descent is to create opportunity. Opportunity to pursue the deeper, more meaningful pleasures in life, namely peace, prosperity, and purpose. And while men won't ever become angels, can we create a small world, a city, in which men are informed and equipped and inspired to become as close to angels as they can be? And what would such a city be except an approximation of paradise? For me, there is no higher calling and there is no place like home. Springfield is the dark horse and Springfield is coming back all the way back. You heard it here first. Thanks for watching. If you want to keep up with the comeback, make sure to subscribe. And in your personal life, remember, work the mind, work the body, work the field. Make safe the city. Godspeed. This video was brought to you by Seed. If you would like to live, work, start a business, or grow a business in Springfield, Massachusetts, please let us know at seedspringfield.com.